curing lung cancer. It may be a dream, but there are amazing people who are getting closer to a cure every day. Could you or someone you know join them? It takes a special kind of person to become a doctor. Then to decide to become a lung cancer researcher, there's even a more select group of these doctors who are from minority groups. They face unique challenges, but also unique opportunities that impact them as well as lung cancer patients. We know it takes dedication, fortitude, years of study. But today, we also learn that mentors can pave the way for our lung cancer researchers, and not just at the Ivy League schools. Our guests talk about how peers, friend tours, and academic mentors can help you see potential in yourself that you may not have known is there. One of our guests sums it up this way. Mentors are those guiding lights that help us to progress to the next stage and and to see paths where we may not have seen them before. Advances in lung cancer treatments over the last few years have made it possible to live with lung cancer for years after diagnosis. Today, we look at how lung cancer research can benefit from an increase in investigators from minority and ethnic communities. I'm Diane Mulligan. And I'm Sarah Beatty. Why is this important? Because researchers who bring a culturally sensitive perspective to lung cancer can make a huge difference in research and in the communities they represent. We will learn more on this in today's Living with Lung Cancer, Hope with Answers podcast. Lung cancer is a tough topic. It's a disease that affects patients, families, friends, co-workers. But first, it's a disease that affects people. The Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast brings you stories about people living, truly living with lung cancer. The researchers dedicated to finding new breakthrough treatments and others who are working to bring hope into the lung cancer experience. Our discussion about how lung cancer researchers who represent minority and ethnic communities have navigated their own careers is fascinating. It was, Sarah. You will hear how mentors have paved the way for these doctors. You will also hear why this is so important in getting the right care to all people, especially those in underserved areas. Today, we are talking to Dr. Jarushka Naidu, a consultant medical oncologist at Beaumont Hospital in Dublin, Ireland, and adjunct assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University, who focuses on immunotherapy and is an LCFA Young Investor Grant recipient. Also, Dr. David Tom Cook, a cardiothoracic surgeon and chief of general thoracic surgery at the University of California Davis Health System, specializing in cancer surgery. And Dr. Christian Rolfo, a thoracic oncologist, professor of Icon School of Medicine, who is Associate Director for Clinical Research in the Center for Thoracic Oncology, Tisch Cancer Institute, Mount Sinai, New York. And welcome to all of you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. You're welcome. Let's talk about the difficulty of becoming a lung cancer young investigator, or should I say cancer researcher? Which do you guys prefer? I would say researcher is fine. Great. We're going to go with researcher then. Thank you so much. So Dr. Cook, You do a lot of work in the equity space for young physicians. 
If an aspiring doctor isn't able to attend one of the top-rated university medical school programs, many of which are Ivy League schools, are there unique challenges to specializing in lung cancer research for graduates from the smaller schools, many of whom are from minority groups? Well, uh, thank you again, Diane, for having me today. And I'm really excited to uh, talk about lung cancer research with this wonderful panel. Um, so one misperception is that that investigative science and research uh, only occurs uh, uh, in the Ivy League level. Um, and that misperception is not amongst researchers uh, throughout this country and others, but mainly in the, in the lay uh, population. Uh, if you look at, say, the, the uh, National Cancer Institute Comprehensive Designated Cancer Centers, uh, there are over 40, and, and uh, the majority of, of whom uh, do not reside within Ivy League environment. Uh, and if you look at the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of research funds that goes into this country, uh, both in the uh, public and private uh, uh, sector uh, in research centers, uh, the vast majority of that goes into uh, other institutions, such as UC Davis Health and Johns Hopkins uh, Medical Center, uh, amongst others. The key here is uh, if you are an individual, especially a, a, a person from an unrepresented medicine background who wants to go into investigative sciences, then it's important to establish a, a mentor, uh, someone who um, uh, introduces you to the scientific method from an early age and guides you through um, a, a proper development pathway uh, to understanding uh, investigative research. And that might mean going into a PhD environment. It me might mean going to an MD environment, MD, PhD. But there's lots of different resources, funding that's available, maybe less funding than before, but still available, and also funding sources and mechanisms and programs that are targeting underrepresented medicine individuals to encourage them to go into investigative sciences, and that includes lung cancer research. And that's really good to hear. And, and Dr. Nida, you've completed your training in Ireland. And as we said before, you're associated with Johns Hopkins University and Beaumont Hospital in Ireland. Can you talk about how mentorship has helped you make the connections necessary to advance your career and access lung cancer research funding? Sure. So I think I have a very unusual path, <laughs> and I think it, it highlights that a mentor can mean different things at different stages in your career. And to me, I think a mentor fundamentally means a teacher. And like teachers, we need a different type of teaching at different times in our careers. So I'm originally South African, but I'm of Asian ethnicity. Um, I won a, a scholarship to go to medical school in Europe, in Ireland, and then I did all of my medical oncology training in the United States. So I feel that I have perspectives from Africa, Asia, Europe, and America. And really, I've, I've had mentorship from all of these, you know, sort of different cultures and different levels of mentorship that have fundamentally, I think, shaped me as a researcher. And I think one of the things that is important about mentors is to realize that not all mentors are going to teach you the same lessons, but you will carry those lessons through your career. And there are some things such as peer mentors, you know, mentors who are maybe at your stage or, or a little bit senior to you who might teach you how to get things done. Friend tours, 
you know, people who are at your stage and, and understand what you might need day to day. And then, of course, the classic academic mentor or senior mentor who has a bird's eye view of careers and how they can guide your career forward, as, as Dr. Cook said. And really, at different stages in our careers, mentors are those guiding lights that help us to, to progress to the next stage and, and to see paths where we may not have seen them before. And I've been very privileged to have a series of mentors. I think, you know, I, I had very formative mentors in Ireland who encouraged me to go to the US for my training. And then in the US, um, I had stellar mentors at Memorial Sloan Kettering and then specifically at Johns Hopkins with Dr. Julie Bramer and Dr. Liz Jaffe, who I think may, may have seen potential in me that I didn't see in myself. And I think that that is something that a mentor can give you where, um, you know, which can be truly formative. So um, I think mentorship is truly critical to being, uh, to achieving one's potential. I love that. And I love friend tours. I've never heard that before, but I love that term. That's a great term. So Dr. Rolfo, you're fluent in English, Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese, and Italian. That's a lot. Did your ability to communicate in several languages help you as you were looking for a specialty in lung cancer research? I will answer in, in bad English. That is the, the most important one. <laughs> so thank you, Diane, for having me. And uh, I think it's uh, I, between me and Dr. Naidu, we are covering the entire globe because I was born in Argentina. I was uh, educated in Italy. Then I was working in Spain, in Belgium, then in Maryland, and now here in New York. So it's a uh, a long, a long uh, trip to arrive here. And I agree with Dr. Cook that not all the investigators need to, to go to the major universities to be investigators. I come from a second city of a, a South American country uh, that I have the opportunity to grow through the mentors. And that's, I, I completely agree with Dr. Naidu. So we have the opportunity to to grow with the different, um, um, different teachers. And, I think uh, this is not only related to a period of our uh, life, it's uh, continuous. Uh, I have uh, now in my position, I'm current mentoring people, but I'm also mentoring and a mentee for, uh, for example, for my, my current uh, director, this Dr. Hirsch. So I'm learning and continue to learn several things. So that's, I think we need to be there is a, another side of the coin that is the mentees. As a mentees, we need to be very proactive searching these mentors. And the mentors are not always in your institutions. They are not always in your country. That's, uh, they are not always doing your own job. So you can take skills from mentors from different areas of uh, covering your, your needs and, and, and giving you expertise in different fields. So, the language certainly coming to your your question. The language was an, an extra skill that helped me a lot. It was a necessity going to with forty years almost to work in Belgium. Need to learn Dutch, and I my colleagues that are hearing this will say you are not fluent in Dutch. Obviously, I agree with that. It's a very difficult language, but the idea that you can communicate with the patients and uh, be in the challenge and always in the edge to try to improve yourself. That I think requires an extra effort that uh, is not only the lucky to be in one place or another, it's an uh, absolutely effort depending on the mentees and be guided by the mentors. I'd love to add to that and say, you know, I think Dr. Rolfo makes a great point about the ability to speak other languages also transcends into research. 
because in team science, we have to learn to speak the language of other researchers. So to understand the language of biostatistics, bioinformatics, translational science, clinical science. So an open-minded attitude to learning the language of others and understanding how that impacts us is critical to being a researcher. So both on the research side, as well on the patient side, this is something that really helps. I think that's great. So each of you comes from a background that's underrepresented in medicine. How has this impacted your careers as researchers? Yeah, sure. I, I can start off with that from my perspective, being an African-American uh, male uh, in this country and, and in medicine. Uh, when you look at clinical trials, um, uh, we do know from lung cancer standpoint that the actual participation in a lung cancer clinical trial uh, affects a survival advantage. Now, that could be because of the intervention or it could be because that the control is standard of care and therefore you're guaranteed of getting standard of care therapy uh, for your lung cancer. But when you look at clinical trials across the board, whether it's cancer or cardiovascular disease, there's an under-enrollment of individuals who are un underrepresented in medicine, specifically Black African-American individuals, as well as other groups such as Latinos. In fact, we are in a golden age of science within lung cancer. We have wonderful results of targeted therapy clinical trials, as well as immunotherapy clinical trials. And one of the key immunotherapy adjuvant clinical trials for early stage lung cancer, which showed disease-free survival, a very beneficial trial, had very few people of color enrolled in that trial, other than Asian Americans, because it was an international trial that included Asian uh, Asian countries, uh, but there are very few uh, Black African Americans enrolled in that trial. But being a, um, a underrepresented medicine physician, I do understand uh, in a cultural competent way the the um, the the, mis the mistrust of the healthcare system from the Black and African American community, and also the misunderstanding of the healthcare system of the Black and African American community. And when I just sit down and talk with patients. I come from that understanding and I, I help to allay their fear of a clinical trial and I help our institution understand how best to support these patients to promote them enrolling into clinical trials. I think that's very insightful. Dr. Naidu, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think working in Baltimore for many years, um, a lot of what Dr. Cook says resonates with me. And I think it resonates as well as a physician of color um, because, for example, in my current institution, I am the only woman and the only person of color in my division. <laughs> and uh, I think that when you are in a position like that, you, um, you represent um, a group. And when they look to you, you know that, um, that how you behave and how you treat others and how you encourage young people to develop is very much a responsibility that lies on your shoulders, that you fly the flag for this group of emerging um, investigators and trainees. And that's something I take very seriously. And I think we should, uh, particularly uh, as those who come from underrepresented minorities, um, try to encourage obviously all of our trainees, but also to we have a responsibility to make sure that the views of those groups are brought forward and are shown to be important and that we um, represent an important seat at the table, and hopefully that there will be more seats at the table from those who may not necessarily uh, come from a typical background. 
I think that's very interesting. And, and it's true that um, you do represent, and all of you represent um, minority populations and bringing the, the, the culture, the attitudes, all of that is as important as bringing the medicine and the science. So Dr. Rolfo, do you think in general, it is harder for young doctors of color to become involved in the lung cancer specialty? I don't believe so. I, it's, to be honest, depends obviously of your predisposition. So I prefer to, to think that we need to focus more in uh, how to, to become good doctors, how to become good researchers, and not trying to victimize ourselves in, uh, uh, for, be, uh, for where we are or what we don't have the opportunities. I was not certainly going to Harvard for my education, but I have the opportunity to be now in a good position and doing what I enjoying what I'm doing. So I think we, as a doctor, sometimes we are a little bit selfish, thinking a lot about our necessities when the real disparity is what Dr. Cook said before in the patients, in the community. So we have there a lot of the focus more than the, I consider myself a privilege and I think the people that is here with me in the panel as well. So we have a good job we are doing. We have the lucky to, to work in, a, in an area that we are enjoying what we are doing. So obviously in the life, you will have always challenges and you will not be able to place to everyone. But uh, I think the real focus here is are the patients. And I think we need to do a lot. If you are looking, for example, uh, the, the, the testing in molecular, what we are doing in, in this country, this is a real disparity. This is a real uh, problem that we have and we need to face. And, uh, and there, from our privileged situation, we need to invest a lot in education for the community. And that is the, is the way that we can improve this. And, and I would like to add on to Dr. Rolfo's excellent point. Um, we, we have to focus on the patients and uh, often, oftentimes, a best way to understand how to, to best treat our patients is to have a healthcare population that reflects our patient population. Uh, for example, uh, according to the Association of American Medical Colleges or AAMC, only 5% of faculty in American medical colleges are African-American uh, compared to 12% of the population. And only 8% uh, are, are Latino Hispanic compared to 18% of the population. Also, if you look at in the last 30 years of Black and African-American graduates of uh, U.S. medical schools, uh, it's been rising in Black females, but it's been dropping in Black males. So in 2015, the number of, of Black male graduates of medical school uh, has, was less than in 1980. That's despite the fact that the number of African-American males in college has been linearly rising. And then finally, according to the WAMC, when you look at percentage of the individuals admitted to medical schools across the board, Caucasian, Asian, Hispanic, the number, the percent of in, in, enrolled in the medical schools is about 40 to 44%. That's across the board. Obviously, a less, you know, different in applicants, but the percentage is the same. But the percentage of African-Americans enrolled in medical school is only 35% of applicants. So we need to relook how we addressed our input into medical education. And that is the pipeline for lung cancer research, really, because it's those researchers who are MDs or MD-PhDs 
or a part of that pipeline. And if I look at that data and I'm an African-American male, I say to myself, how can I get to point B and able to do high level lung cancer research if there's something involved with the system that is disparate between um, the person sitting to the left of me and the person sitting to the right of me in college or high school? Yeah, and I want to say something, Diane, if you allow me. Uh, so I think it's a very good point what the Dr. Cook is doing. Uh, when I came here in, to United States, it was difficult to me to understand that doctors are having a mortgage to pay the, their own career. So it's something that is very uh, unusual. I, I, I was became a doctor without paying a, a, a coin in my country in Argentina. So I think this is a something that we need to work because another disparity is the access to the education. And that is not depending if you are African-American, Latino, Asiatic. So I think this is a common problem with the incomes. And there are uh, white people that is also uh, having the, facing a lot of economical problems to, to go to the school. So I think this is something that we need to work a lot if we want to have an access to the education and be equally for the population, regardless of your origin. These doctors brought up so many interesting angles in this discussion, from the decline in the number of African-American medical students to how other countries help their doctors pay the bills while they're in school. Diane, you know, economic factors are always a part of the disparities conversation. And in our next segment, I'm looking forward to hearing how the choice of a medical school impacts a researcher's ability to focus on the lung cancer specialty. Are you enjoying the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast? Consider making a donation to help LCFA produce this resource for patients or anyone seeking answers, hope, and access to updated treatment information, scientific investigation, and clinical trials. Just text LCF America to 41444 to join in this important fight. Each of our guests today represents a different minority group. Their insight into how this has impacted their lives as lung cancer researchers sheds light on what can be done for other researchers from minority or ethnic communities. We have talked a bit about mentors, but now we look at some of the barriers and the changes in the system that bring hope into creating more opportunities for these researchers. Some medical schools that aren't Ivy League schools are a little less expensive, and so more people are people will go there as well. Do you think that if you go to a non-Ivy League institution, um, you have and you graduate, you have more difficulty getting research funding than someone who is affiliated with a Harvard or Johns Hopkins, or or a you know a very major institution when you're going after lung cancer funding. I think um, you know as as a lung cancer young investigator myself, I think it's more about the research environment that that you are you know surrounded by a group of motivated researchers who are perhaps invested in you as a young investigator and, invest, and invested in lung cancer research themselves and that you have members of a dynamic team. And I'm of the belief that that can definitely happen in institutions outside of the Ivy League. Um, and we do see researchers from a number of different uh, institutions receiving uh, funding, but 
I think how we will see more and more funding going to various different institutions is to focus on generating that environment and being a little bit more creative about how mentorship can happen across institutions and even in, in a global research environment. The environment is key and also expectations, right? Um, oftentimes leadership uh, expects uh, young uh, researchers to go from zero to 60 in just a few seconds. And it takes time to develop uh, a, a hypothesis, a research model, uh, data information that then could go on for application to a higher level, say NIH uh, type of award. And especially for our, our scientists who are, are also MDs and have a clinical practice. And they need to be in an environment where uh, they can balance the clinical time, the education time, the research time, and their own personal wellness and well-being time to, uh, to be successful. Um, and it's the onus is on leadership to have realistic expectations of their young researchers. Yeah, and also important that they, they need to be a more education in how to write, for example, a paper, how to start to collecting data in a proper manner. So there are several things that are not in the, sometimes obviously it's limited the time of education. And here in the United States in three years, they need to become an oncology and an hematology expert with a dual board certification. So that is a little bit challenging to include that, but certainly there will be some opportunities for outside the programs that they can uh, search for this and protected time is something that Dr. Cook brings to the table. And I think it's very important because uh, several institutions are demanding, especially to the junior faculty, a lot of commitment in clinics. And it's very difficult that this person is dedicated also to have some grants uh, without even mentoring sometimes. So that is uh, it's important to recognize. So we talked about some of the barriers that you see um, in the mentoring programs. So do you think there need to be more mentoring programs? Are there like mentoring programs out there that are doing it really well? And do you think that there's enough? And if not, why hasn't more been done? Because from what you're saying, mentors for each and every one of you were extremely important. Am I right there? Yeah, I think I can, I can start with that. I think I had a, a really superb experience of mentoring at Hopkins. So the Hopkins approach was each sort of um, new young investigator, whether they be faculty or fellows, had a mentorship committee. And I think what that showed was that there are a variety of approaches to mentoring and that different mentors may bring different skills. So usually there was a primary mentor who may be clinical if the, the fellow or the attending was a, a clinical a clinician, um, then a scientific mentor, and then two or three other mentors who sort of had a big picture approach. And, and this mentoring committee would meet usually twice a year to sort of think about the projects of the mentee as a whole, and of course, like Dr. Rolfo said, there was a lot of onus on the mentee as well to drive forward what the goal of the mentorship committee was. And really together, there was sort of a symbiosis between the mentee and the mentorship committee. I think some of the challenges, of course, are that generally, like any skill, there are certain mentors that are particularly skilled at mentoring. And what generally happens is that those mentors 
um, become somewhat famous and oversubscribed. Um, and uh, and then you know the challenge I think is is in building or upskilling the mentorship skills of multiple different investigators. But I'd be interested to hear what what Dr. Cook and Dr. Rolfo think of this as obviously as senior investigators in this space. Yeah, I would agree. And also, I, I think there's also uh, underutilized resources, and they may be underutilized because many people aren't aware of them. Um, and those those range from um, uh, uh, young investigator awards uh, and also training awards from the NIH, um, from uh, AAMC, um, from single institution uh, resources that Dr. Naidu uh, um, uh, alluded to. Uh, as well as our own alphabet societies for our own specialties have resources for uh, um, um, young investigators and even underrepresented minorities. Um, we actually looked at the, the, at, at the very early end of the pipeline, we actually looked at in the cardiothoracic surgical training space, the availability of underrepresented medicine visiting medical student clerkships. And what we found was that the majority of our cardiothoracic surgery training programs were at medical, medical school institutions that had such a, a visiting clerkship program. However, very few of our program directors actually even were aware of the, the existence of these, of these programs and very few of them utilized them. But when asked, the majority of them said that they, now that they know, they will utilize them in the future. So there's a lot of concern about young investigators and minority investigators in, in this country and around the world. And because of that, it's generated a lot of resources, but we just need to coalesce these resources and become aware of them. Dr. Kirk, real quick, what's a visiting clerkship? I'm not sure that I, I've heard that before. So that's when a medical student from another institution comes to your institution to look around, do a rotation, and understand if they perhaps want to do their next le level graduate medical education at your institution. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Rolfo, I know you had a comment as well. Yeah, no, the only thing that I want to say is uh, we have a lot of resources for young investigators too and for fellows. Obviously, there are limitations of time. Sometimes we have also the societies that are helping a lot. But I think we are missing one important part here uh, that is the mid-career. So we are putting all the coins in the early careers. And then since that there is nothing, you need to be alone and take yourself <laughs> the education. So I think uh, mid-career is very important because it's a crucial productive time that you have in your career. So if you are not also uh, investing uh, in there, you have uh, the risk that this uh, research is not continuing and the mentoring is also affected for young for young people. So we need to invest a little bit more and that is a topic that I brought several times to different societies because it's important that we involve people like we are here in the panel. So we are in the middle of our career or even more and, and we need to continue to be mentoring and, and, and be creating networking. That's a great point, absolutely. So that it's something that goes, it's seamless. It goes throughout your entire career and really helps you move forward. Um, so when applying for an NIH grant, do you have to address questions about disparate populations and equal opportunities for participation? And if so, is this new? And how does that impact our research? Applying for uh, uh, any federal uh, award, you have to look at, and then also uh, any institutional, uh, uh, what we call K equivalent or, or uh, young investigator, 
investigator training award, you have to uh, document um, how your research uh, will reach out to uh, uh, underserved communities or underserved populations. Uh, and also, um, will women be in, enrolled in this trial um, if it's not, say, a specific uh, research question that only pertains to women, such as uh, gyne uh, gynecology, oncology type uh, uh, situations. So uh, that is key, and your grant application will be evaluated based on these rules. Now, ostensibly, this has been in effect for probably the last decade, uh, but I think currently there is even more attention on the ability of your study to engage uh, previously uh, under-engaged uh, communities uh, for this research question. Thank you so much for explaining that, because I think that's really important that people understand that, yes, there is this, there is a push out there, whether it's been effective is a whole nother question, but there is something that's out there. So, you know, our podcast is called Hope With Answers. So each of you has talked about that you've had some great mentors. I would like each of you to tell me about the hope that they instilled in you that you'd be able to achieve your goals and how important your mentors have been to your career. And Dr. Rolfel, I'd love to start with you. Yeah, mentors were very important for me. When I started, I can, I can make a personal comment. So when I started my career, I arrived to Milan in Italy and I have this uh, person that is Professor Luca Gianni, who was in a big entity in breast cancer. And uh, at that moment, and it is an, a, a person who changed the treatment of breast cancer. And he told me um, one thing that was changing my life. You no, know, say, I want to give you the opportunity to make your career international. And uh, I know that in your country, you will not be able to get this opportunity. So give me that opportunity was changing my life forever. And then, uh, the, 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 the opportunity that I have with different mentors, skills of like Dr. Naidu was telling, different skills that you get from different mentors. One of my mentors, uh, Dr. Casali, teach me how to communicate with patients. That is something that you, want, you are not prepared. And, and it's good that we recognize and we remember all this uh, teaching because we need to apply this in the future. I know that we are very busy and we don't have time to sometimes to uh, spend a lot of time with, uh, with the students or with the fellows and it's something that we need to make in a space because is we are changing life and uh, if we remember our own history uh, that is, is important so I, I think we need to continue I continue with my, my own mentors in being in contact and uh, that is interesting and then I was changing and I have other mentors that are new in this moment I have for example some mentorings for uh, bioinformatics. That is something that I am not having a skill or a mathematician or a statistician for uh, discover another point of the liquid biopsy that I'm working. So the, I think it's a, a constant search and that's for the reason I say it's very important that the mentees are very proactive because if you are sitting there, uh, even if you are coming from a big institution, you are sitting there and you don't take the opportunities nobody will knock your door to say, hey, come with us to do this or that. So it's, it's important that we are proactive. Absolutely. Dr. Cook, how about you? Sure. Uh, one of my earliest mentors was, in, you know, in a previous life, I was an immunology uh, researcher and um, I was uh, uh, immunology 
uh, major at, at uh, UC Berkeley in California. And my one of my earliest mentors was my research mentor, uh, Dr. Marion Koshlin. And um, I, I did uh, my thesis in her lab. And if you uh, stood us next to each other, you would think that there's nothing in common between us. Uh, she was older, I was younger. Uh, she was wealthy, I was not. Uh, she was a smoker, I wasn't. Um, uh, but we both loved immunology and she took a specific interest in my career and she taught me that I shouldn't limit myself in any way and I should strive for the best and any opportunity I want to strive for. And uh, that theme has sort of progressed throughout my, my life and the, the common theme, and this is an important message to potential mentees, is that uh, there's a phrase that's common in, in the diversity and, and inclusion space, which I hate, which is you can't be what you can't see. And Dr. Naidu just expressed that she's the only woman and only person of color uh, in her division, yet she's extremely successful. And the key is cross demographic mentorship. Your mentor doesn't have to look like you or come from the same background um, or even quite frankly, be of the same political persuasion but they have to um, have faith in your abilities and their only goal in mentorship, mentoring you is, is seeing your success. And I think that's a, an important message when it comes to the mentor-mentee relationship. That's a great point of, of being seeing your success. I think that's fabulous. Dr. Naidu, how about you? Well, I think, um, you know, I've also been privileged to have a, a number of, of stellar mentors. Um, in Ireland, I was mentored by um, former president of the ISLAC, Professor Des Carney, and um, a breast cancer researcher, Dr. John Kennedy, who was actually at Hopkins for many years and prophesied that I would end up at Hopkins, and I did. Um, and I think that he truly instilled in me, you know, the, the, the genuine love for the specialty, the complexity, the interplay between, um, you know, understanding the different specialties that contribute to the world of oncology and the true commitment to lifelong learning. And I, I brought that to my experience in the US. I think my experience at Hopkins with Jed Walchuk and Naya Rizvi really opened doors for me to participate in, in fundamental educational activities such as the AACR ASCO Veil workshop. And then at Hopkins, I think working with uh, Elizabeth Jaffe and Julie Bramer, I think again, um, as Dr. Cook said, um, I think the, their commitment to your career and, and your goals um, as, as part of their goals, you really felt a sense that um, there is a celebration of the achievements of their mentee that is prized beyond their own achievements. And I think that that is something that you see that is common in really good mentors is, um, is that they, they really value the successes and contributions of their mentees even more than their own and their contribution to the next generation. So I think certainly that's something um, all mentors and mentees should aspire to in, in their relationship. Yeah, I, I have to uh, some, just I will say a humble uh, advice for, for the mentees. No, don't believe that your mentor need to be your mentor forever, that you are asking everything and you will get all the answers. So for the reason we, I think, all of us, we was discussing and, and stressing the point that we need to have 
different mentors with different skills in different points. And you don't need to feel bad if you are not having more this connection with this person for this specific topic, because it's, you are taking the best of everyone to improve your career. And the mentors are habited to do that. So you, you are not as a mentor supposed to give all the answers to all your mentees. So you, you need to give your skills and get the, give the best that you have to them. What a wonderful note to end on. So thank you so much. I, this was just a fascinating discussion today and we really, really appreciate it. We appreciate your time and your thoughtful discussion here about mentorship and disparate populations and how it affects both the medical community as well as it, it affects the patients. So thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having us today. What a thoughtful discussion with enlightening insights about doctors and patients from minority and ethnic communities and the importance of mentors in expanding the ranks of minority researchers. And thank you to Dr. David Tom Cook of UC Davis, Dr. Christian Rolfo from Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, and Dr. Jerushka Naidu from Beaumont Hospital in Dublin, who's also an LCFA Young Investigator grant recipient. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. You'll be notified every time a new episode is available. So visit us online at lcfamerica.org where you can find more information about the latest in lung cancer research, new treatments, and more. You can also join the conversation with LCFA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 